From June of 2009 until May of 2010, a man in Bradford, England, murdered three sex workers using a crossbow. Thought of as mild-mannered, somewhat controlling, and often peculiar, he was obsessed with serial killers and, in fact, was a Ph.D. student using homicide for his thesis. He was brazen, killing, dismembering, and yes, even eating some of his victims' flesh. Police had a difficult time finding clues that would ever lead them to the serial killer. That is until the murder of his final victim is captured on closed-circuit television. This is the story of Stephen Griffiths, the crossbow killer. Hey, y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. Everybody. Yes, welcome, welcome, welcome. And for our friends in Japan. Oh, okay. Yokoso, Yokoso, Yokoso. I only know Ohio Gazamas. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> you said yes. Yes. Ohio Gazamas. That's oh, did you see me bow? I even bowed doing I know. it. Yeah, I saw it. I saw it. I know. I had to get a little bit of Japanese training once a long time ago. A very long time ago. Monday night. It's okay. It's all going to be okay. It means no problem. No problem. It's all going to be okay. See how good I am? Yeah, it's really good. Very good. Excellent. Well, wherever you're listening, be sure to like, rate, and review. That helps other people to find us. It does. You can subscribe on any of those podcast platforms, or you can watch us on YouTube, and you can subscribe there, too. Yeah. Also, go join the In-Laws and Outlaws on Facebook. It's our close Facebook group. Have a lot of fun in there. Everybody's great. You'll have a good time. Yep. Everybody's a comedian. I know I always say it, but they really are. It's a good group of people. You will find like-minded people. Yeah, I got my last uh, uh, Bless Your Hearts from Yes, you did. Participants. Last, last week we did all Bless Your Hearts from the in-laws and yeah, outlaws. They were That's good, right. too. Mm-hmm, they were good. Yep. Well, I'm going to jump right into this one today because we're going over the pond to England. Oh. I got to go to London right before everything closed down for COVID. Loved it. It was amazing. Not a whole lot of gluten-free food for me. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did find gluten-free fish and chips, which, by the way, is Rob's favorite oh, yeah. ever. That and you, shepherd's pie. Yeah, you can tell he's definitely a European guy <laughs> with the red hair and the things that he likes to eat. Oh, yeah. What can I say? Oh, well. Before we get started, let me thank some sources. Murderpedia, A Little Bit Human, Criminal Minds Fandom, The Sun, Crime and Investigation UK, The Guardian, The Mirror, The British Council, World's Most Evil Killers, The Telegraph and The Telegraph and Argus, and Rob's favorite book. The Big Book of Serial Killers. That's right. Tell him what he's won, John. That's right, folks. You've won a true crime podcast. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, you ready to go? I am. All right, let's do this. 
Stephen Sean Griffiths was born on Christmas Eve 1969 in Dewberry West Rising of Yorkshire to Moira Dewhurst and Stephen Griffiths Sr. Okay. It really sucks to have a Christmas birthday. (laughs) I'm going to say it off the bat. That's one of the things that's wrong with this guy. Yeah, yeah. It's tough. You got to get low. This is for Christmas and your birthday. Anybody who has that December birthday, like me, you know. My lovely bride. On the 30th, so, you know. I know. Well, New Year's baby. As daddy's little tax (laughs) write-off. Exactly. Squeezed it in. Squeezed it in right at the end. His father is a frozen food salesman. So when I read that, all I could think of was like the Schwann's guy. Hmm. And his mother was a switchboard operator. She would answer and connect calls and take messages. So since his father was a frozen food guy, does that mean he was cold and calculated? Uh. That's good, because he is. Oh, really? I was just trying to make a stupid joke. His son is cold and calculated. The Uh, father is not. Okay. Yeah. All right. But his mom takes these messages. In England, it's called a telephonist. Hmm. I'm going to give you all kinds of little factoids, and everybody who lives in England right now is going to be like, she's screwing it up. But (laughs) I'm trying to do this, so all of the Yanks over here, this is the only time I'll ever call myself a Yankee. (laughs) Understand exactly what we're talking about because it's. We'll check with our friends Andrew and Sarah. That's right. It's never apples to apples. We have a lot of things that are similar, but not everything is. Just want to make sure everybody knows exactly what we're talking about. But his mom was also apparently a con artist who would later be convicted of fraud. And I looked deep, deep, deep into that and could not find anything else about it. Hmm. But by the time Stephen is 13, his father had saved enough money for him to study. At a public fee-paying school, which is an independent school, it was around 9,000 pounds a year to attend. Wow. So oddly enough, in the United Kingdom, public schools are perceived as the most exclusive and prestigious. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Eton College, Harrow School, Wellington College, those are all public schools. Oh. A fee-paying school is like a step down from that. It's an independent school. It's got like a board of trustees that oversee it, kind of like a private school in the United States. And then they have private schools in the UK that are just run by its owners. And those aren't – wow, that's like backwards from here. It's backwards, yeah. yeah. But what we call public school in the United States, they actually call a state school. Hmm. Yeah. So there's your – that's one of your little lessons today. Okay. When Stephen is only 13, his parents split, and he and his siblings stay with their mother. He's got two siblings. Now, this doesn't set well with Stephen because he's really, really close with his dad. And when Moira starts turning tricks for money, Stephen had a strange and disturbing habit of watching his mother have sex with multiple men in the garden behind their home. Man. Moira. Moira, I know. It's Moira. You got to love that. You got to love it. it. You know, it's Schitt's Creek. You just yeah. can't get past it. It's Moira, one of the best characters ever in television. I uh, never thought I'd hear that name again. Moira. <laughs> As a teenager, Stephen liked to shoplift. Hmm. He would steal from stores. He would steal from his classmates. And speaking of his classmates, they thought he was a little bit odd. (laughs) Well, I can't imagine why. And not just because he's watching his mom get it on in the garden behind. Yeah. 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 Mary, Mary, quite contrary. How does your garden grow? (laughs) No euphemism there. Yeah. But he liked to collect 
hunting knives, hmm. and he liked to talk about violence a lot. <laughs> wow. And he's a really smart kid, but his teachers and his classmates found him hard to get along with. And he's also being abusive to animals. Oh, man. Well, there's some foreboding right there. Yeah. I mean, we see this a lot in serial killers that they start with small animals. Yeah. And Stephen's no different. He leaves school before doing A-levels, which are like AP classes in the United States. High school, but taking university classes, but not at university. Okay. So he leaves school at the age of 16 before doing A-levels. Okay. When he's 17 and out shoplifting at a supermarket in Leeds, the manager actually catches him and tries to stop him. And Stephen promptly pulls out one of his handy-dandy knives, and he slashes the manager's face. The man would need 19 stitches. Holy cow. So it's not a small cut by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. And Stephen is promptly arrested and sentenced to three years in youth custody, which in the United States is... Juvie. Juvie. That's right. Juvenile detention. Yep. Now, while he's in youth custody, he loses contact with his family. Like, he doesn't talk to any of them. And he tells his probation officers and his psychiatrist that he fantasized about being a serial killer. (laughs) Wow. So some kids fantasize about... You know, being a fireman (laughs) or becoming a sports star or a famous actor. Or if you're a boy, maybe you fantasize about girls or being a musician or being a famous (laughs) musician. Yes. But Stephen dreamed of being a famous serial killer. Well, everybody's got to have a goal, I guess. And he did. He spends only one year in youth custody, and when he's released at the age of 19, he lives in a flat in Manningham and enrolled in Bradford College to study psychology. Oh, man. It's always the crazy people who study psychology. Sorry if you're a psychology major. I'm just kidding. But there are a lot of serial killers who actually study psychology. Yeah. Two years later, in 1989, when he's 20 years old, he's sentenced to 100 hours of community service after it was discovered that he was shooting birds with an illegal air pistol and then dissecting them. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. I guess you got to have a hobby. Well, (laughs) when I read that, I thought, he was a pretty good shot. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, how far away are the birds? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. A year later in 1990, Stephen is arrested again. This time he's sentenced to two years in prison for holding a knife to a young girl's throat. And here's the story. There's this group of four girls that for some reason Stephen felt slighted by. I don't know if he asked one of them out, if he wanted to talk to one of them. But when he doesn't get the response that he wants Mm -hmm. and one of the girls laughs, he pulls out a knife He holds it to her throat and says to her, quote, what do you think you're laughing at? End quote. Yeah, that's not going to get you very many dates. He's not a man to be trifled with. No. Yeah. He's sentenced to two years in prison, including eight weeks at Rampton Secure, which is a hospital in Nottinghamshire. That is so hard to say. Nottinghamshire, but it's Nottinghamshire. Yep. And it's during this time that Stephen is actually diagnosed as a sadistic, schizoid psychopath. And those are his good qualities. That's exactly (laughs) right. And here comes the dad who's a frozen food salesman. He's a cold, detached person with no feelings 
and no remorse. Wow. Yeah. Sorry if you, I, I love the Schwann's man. Yeah. Don't come for me. <laughs> I love the Schwann's man. Yeah. After he's diagnosed at Rampton Secure Hospital, he's transferred to Leeds Prison. And while he's at Leeds Prison, he's letting the other inmates know all about his knowledge of murderers. Wow. And he liked to talk about murder. And he fantasized about killing. So we talk about murder every week. And some of the things that Stephen does, I also do. But there's a difference between being interested in murder and true crime. Yeah. And fantasizing about killing. Okay, I'm glad you I'm glad you made that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Right. When he's released in 1992, Stephen begins to collect books about serial killers. I too have quite a collection of those. Yeah. But he's using them as study guides. He wants to find a more efficient manner of murder. I told you he's a smart guy. Yeah. Stephen focused on Jack the Ripper, the Moore's murders, the acid bath murder, and his personal favorite, Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. Wow. Who was convicted of 13 murders, and most of those were sex workers. Mm. So Stephen finishes his psychology degree in 1993. Okay. And by this time, Stephen is quite... The dark character. (laughs) Like he wasn't before. (laughs) He liked to dress up as if he's like a villain from a Marvel or a DC movie. Mm. He had black clothes, a long leather trench coat. He had black hair. He put baby oil in his hair. He had really long black hair and put baby oil in it. And he's kind of dressing like the shadow. Oh, well, the shadow was like an anti-hero. He wasn't like evil, bad. He's not good or bad. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But he's also become, this is really weird, he's become terrified of insects crawling into his ear canals, and he started stuffing cotton wool into his ears at night. Okay. He's like putting cotton balls (laughs) in his ears at night because he's afraid an insect is going to, like, crawl in there. All right. Whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So weird for sure. And he's living in Bradford, but people think he's mostly harmless. And he's even going to have a few girlfriends. And in the beginning, they think he's charming and kind of smart, but he's very controlling. So the relationships would never last. Hmm. In 1998, when Stephen is 29, he begins dating Zeta Pinder. Great name, Zeta. (laughs) Zeta finds him in the Lonely Hearts column of the newspaper. Hmm. This is the original Tinder or Match.com or eHarmony or whatever. It's the Lonely Hearts Club. (laughs) And his ad says that he's a 20-something man who's working toward being a counselor. Okay. Okay. Whatever. And Zeta calls him up because he doesn't say, I've been thrice incarcerated. I love to wield knives and I'm obsessed with serial killers. That's not in his ad. (laughs) He's not listing his hobbies. He's not. He's putting (laughs) his best foot forward, as most people do. Zeta and Steven meet up at a pub. And when she sees him, she's like, "Okay, he's goth. He's got the trench coat, the long black hair. And on his first date, Steven gives Zeta a glamour shot of himself. Oh, I, I didn't see that coming. I mean, it's like, here, honey, here's a little something to remember <laughs> me by. And it's a glamour shot. I have seen it. I'll post it in the in-laws and outlaws. It's long. I mean, he's got like the 
you know. And this the, was on their first date? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. First date. He's lied about everything. Wow. Shows up with the hair and the, you know, he thinks he's Fabio, but he's like greasing it down. Did she run immediately? <laughs> uh, no. No, wow. she's his girlfriend for a little bit. Okay. Zeta has said that he talked a lot about himself <laughs> and she thought he was a quote poser. Yeah. End quote. So he's trying to impress her. Sure. He was really kind and caring towards Zeta. He was very touchy feely. He liked to hold Zeta's hand when they went out. And these two stay together for two years. Wow. But soon. She finds out that he has been lying to her. So what do you think he's lying to her about? Uh, There's so many things to choose from. I couldn't (laughs) begin to tell you. Well, they're out one night in Bradford. They're having a drink. And he just said off the cuff, I'm going to run to my flat for a hot sec for something. And she's like, hold the phone. You told me you lived with your parents. (laughs) And suddenly he confesses. Yeah, I got a place of my own. So she goes with him to see this place. And she has said that she never felt threatened until she walked into his flat. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. And while he's opening the door, he tells her that next door, a woman was killed right outside the door. And she's saying to him, how can you live here if someone was killed here? (laughs) Exactly. And he's like, eh, no big deal. Because I did it. No, not yet, but yeah, yeah. So he starts to make her a cup of tea, a cuppa. He's making her a cup of tea. And while she waits, she can see all the books that Stephen has on serial killers. And on the walls, he has samurai swords. They're like crossed at the top. Right. And on the floor were crossbows. And she says, you know what? I'm not feeling so hot. I think I'm going to go home. I think my time is done here. I'm out. Yeah. Tapping out. And the next day she tells Stephen it's over. Yeah. Then he dated another woman named Kathy Hancock. She is a former prison officer, but he was abusive to her within the first two weeks of dating. Mm. He was controlling. And when he was angry because he wanted her to move in with him and she wouldn't because she owned two dogs, he drugged her tea and then told her he did it. He said, oh, I put something in your drink. That probably isn't a good idea. I probably shouldn't have mixed those two things. Wow. Then he would not call 999 for her or 911 here. She gets in the car. She drives herself to the hospital. And when she finally gets home to her house, her home had been burglarized. And the only thing taken, her two dogs, who she loved so much. All right. This guy's bigger than a scumbag. I know. It, once you get to the dogs, yeah. we're done. Don't mess with the dogs. It's John Wick all over again. Jeez. Don't mess with the dog. No, no. Now, her neighbor's going to tell her later that Stephen came to her house at three in the morning while she's in the hospital and took the dogs away. Okay. And he's like, look, honey, now you can move in with me. Mm. And she does. What? Yes. Because at the time, she was none the wiser. She did not know that he had taken the dogs. And I'm just like, okay, he drugged you. Two plus two is four. If it looks like a duck and it quacks (laughs) like like a duck. duck, It's probably a duck. Probably a duck. But once she's in his home, the abuse really began. He gives her a headbutt after going out with her sister. 
He punched her out, leaving her unconscious just because. Wow. And when this happens, a bottle breaks and her leg is cut. And while she's out cold, he just takes all her clothes off and puts her to bed. And when she wakes up, they had a big fight. And one reason he liked her so much was because she would fight with him. Right. Yeah. And to him, that was a thrill. Yeah. Some, I mean, some people thrive on conflict. Well, yeah, this guy's all over the board because he likes to seem mild mannered and then he wants to be controlling and then he's just abusive. Yeah. By 2001, Stephen turns 32 and he begins to drink a lot and he starts using drugs. And Kathy's family is really worried about her because of the abuse. So Kathy went to the police, but then she got pregnant. Mm. But the pregnancy was an ectopic pregnancy and she lost the baby. And Stephen took the positive pregnancy test stick and he made a coffin for it. Wow. This guy's twisted. Twisted sister, man. Yeah. Wow. And at this point, she's like, I'm out. (laughs) I'm out. She leaves him. She breaks up with him. But for the next 10 years, Stephen will stalk and harass Kathy. Mm. And according to Kathy, this is when Stephen started something really bizarre. After they break up, he bought animals. Okay. First, he bought two snakes, which died. Okay. Then he moved on to lizards. (laughs) He bought himself two lizards. One was a four-foot long monitor lizard. Wow. And he would frequently take them on walks around the neighborhood on dog leashes, (laughs) wearing the black trench coat. Can you imagine having a neighbor like that? And all the long, oily, baby oil hair. Wow. He would take them to nightclubs because apparently that's how you get the girls. I guess. Is that a lizard in your pocket? (laughs) Are you just happy to see me? (laughs) Very good, babe. But um (laughs) um Yeah. Let me get my drum out. He also started a rat farm so he could feed his lizards. What happened to dogs and kitties? He's being self-sustaining anyway, right? (laughs) Yes. Wow. Then one day he invited one of his neighbors, Rachel Farrington, into his flat, and she watched as Stephen was fascinated and in awe of how his lizard would eat a live rat. Okay. Yeah. And one of Stephen's buddies named Billy Parkin, I don't know why he would ever say he was a buddy. Maybe I take that out. One of these guys that knew Stephen, <laughs> I don't want Billy coming after me. Yeah, exactly. Has said that he once saw Stephen eat a live baby rat. Oh. I also read that Stephen once asked a girl up to his flat, and when she went inside, everything was covered in plastic. All right. Like Everything. Really? And it made me think of American Psycho when Christian Bale or Patrick Bateman is asked, you know, so what do you do? And he says, I'm into murders and executions mostly. (laughs) But that's what it made me think of. Now, during all this time, Stephen isn't working. He's surviving off grants. He's going to school. And in 2003, he earns his bachelor degree in psychology. And then he enrolled in the University of Bradford to go for his Ph.D. in homicide studies. Of course. That's that's the natural course. Yeah. (laughs) So what better way to hide as a serial killer than to be a Ph.D. candidate in homicide studies where he compares 19th century serial killers to modern-day serial killers. Wow. His thesis title was 
homicide in an industrial city specializing in lethal violence from the late Victorian era. Okay. So now he can talk about murder all the time, and he's just being a really smart guy because he studies this. And he's going to get rewarded for it. Well, he just, you know, it's it's a great it's a great cover. Now, because Stephen doesn't work, he spends most of his time online. He liked to download porn, violent porn. And on his MySpace account, I never had a MySpace account. I just, I never did. I I skipped that altogether. Never had one. (laughs) I didn't either. I think the kids had MySpace accounts. I don't think I did. You're pretty up to date on all that stuff. I don't remember. It's probably still up there. Somebody go look for it. (laughs) I guess I should look and see if it's still there. Well, on Stephen's MySpace account, he liked to post inspirational quotes. Hmm. Well, inspirational quotes to him. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. And, and they're quotes by fictional killers like Francis Dollarhide. And if you don't know who that is, mm-hmm. he's a fictional character from Thomas Harris's novel, The Red Dragon, okay. which is the prequel to Silence of the Lambs. Ah, okay. And the Francis character was a necrophiliac, serial killer, and family annihilator. Once again, those were the good qualities. They were. Yeah. He killed entire families, this character does. And he's actually nicknamed the Tooth Fairy in the book because he comes for you at night. Mm. And he kills at the behest of his alternate personality. And he calls it the Great Red Dragon. Wow. And killing people or changing them allows him to more fully become... The dragon. Okay. Stephen loves this. He wants to be a dragon. He wants to be like these characters. Hmm. Stephen's MySpace account username was Vin Pariah, a figure from demonology. He said he was, quote, a misanthrope who brought hate into heaven, end quote. But he appeared in a photograph on MySpace naked from the chest up, which makes sense if he's like handing out glamour shots at the bar (laughs) while he's got his lizard in his backpack. Yeah. Wow. And he quoted the Bible, Ezekiel 25, 17, the path of the righteous man is beset on all sides. Does that sound familiar? That's from uh, Pulp Fiction. Quentin Tarantino's Vault Fiction. That is right. (laughs) Yeah. Samuel Jackson. Samuel L. Jackson. Love him. Nobody says mother effer like he does. (laughs) It's It's my favorite. It makes me laugh every time. (laughs) But Stephen declared on MySpace, quote, humanity is not merely a biological condition. It is also a state of mind. On that basis, I am a pseudo human at best, a demon at worst. End quote. The guy is just filled with just evil. Just evil. Is he filled with evil or does he want to be filled with evil? Yeah, is he a poser or is he really? Yeah, okay. He's definitely a poser. Yeah. Yeah. But this MySpace page seemed to be an expression of his violent alter ego. And this is the one that will eventually take action. And in fact, the night before killing one of his victims, he posted, quote, What will this pseudo-human do, one wonders? Poor Stephen pretended to be me, but he was only the wrapping. He knew towards the end that I supplied the inner core of iron, hatred bound tightly in flesh. At very long last, the time has come to act out. End quote. Wow. I mean, he's obviously looking for attention. He wants 
people to think that he's something more than what he's not. So Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So he's obsessed with serial killers. He reads true accounts of killers all the time. He read fictional novels about serial killers. Sorry, but same. <laughs> Sorry. But Stephen liked to prey on the weakness of others, as most killers do. Right. I mean, we always say on the podcast, the weak impala of the herd. And in order to be around more and more weak impalas, he moved into a top floor flat in a converted Victorian textile factory on Thornton Road in Bradford in order to be closer to the sex workers. Mm. Ten years before he starts to murder, he moves to this place. And starts to befriend the sex workers. So, of course, they're out there. They're looking for work. They're going to gather in a place that has little to no monitoring by the police. A perfect place for a killer to hide. Stephen would be kind to them. He saw how desperate many of them were. And according to David Wilson, who's a professor of criminology at Birmingham City University, he zeroed in on, quote, these voids and the Invisible Women Society had pushed between the cracks, end quote. Mm. Stephen knew he could do whatever he wanted, and he could even kill, because it would be easy. Mm. Now, in 1975, Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, started targeting sex workers. Five years, seven injured, 13 dead women later, he is finally caught. Okay. And another killer named Kenneth Valentine would actually rent his bedroom to sex workers for five pounds a session. Hmm. And then he would watch through a hole. This went on until he raped and murdered a 25-year-old sex worker who wouldn't have sex with him. And Valentine's neighbor? Stephen Griffiths. Uh. They lived in the same building. Homefeld Court. Wow. And this was a highly publicized case. And Stephen was all neat. Oh, man. Woo. I want to be like him. And I want to be like Peter Sutcliffe. Yeah. I want to be like the Yorkshire Ripper. Right. But Stephen didn't look or act like a killer. He would sometimes cook dinner and wash the clothes of sex workers. He would let them sleep on his couch when they had nowhere to go. Quote, he was like a brother to me. End quote. Mm. According to a sex worker named Donna, we thought he was just a numpty, end quote. A numpty? Or as we say in the South, a lunkhead. <laughs> I've never heard that one. A numpty. <laughs> He's a numpty. Uh, commit that will, to memory. I will use that one again. Yep. So he's living among these sex workers. He's studying serial killers day and night in school, and he's in his own home. He's watching violent pornography. He's been diagnosed as a schizoid psychopath. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Uh, Nothing good can come of this. And now we start. All right. Monday, June 22nd, 2009, 1130 a.m., a 43-year-old local Bradford woman, her name is Susan Rushworth, is seen boarding a single-decker bus near the Tyke Pub on Thornton Road, Bradford, West Yorkshire. Okay. At 12 p.m., she's seen in the Manningham area near her flat in Oak Villas after she gets off the bus. She's supposed to be meeting a friend, but Susan did not show. Susan's the mother of three who has epilepsy and is being treated for a heroin addiction. She will never contact her family or use her phone ever again, nor will she ever use her bank cards again. Mm. Susan grew up locally in the Bradford area, but she got mixed up in drugs. 
Her marriage ended, she was depressed, and she fell in with the wrong crowd, and soon to fuel her drug habit, she became a sex worker. But she was trying really hard to break her addiction. Stephen invited Susan back to his flat, then he shot her with a crossbow before dismembering her body in his bathtub. Wow. According to Stephen, he kept some of her flesh, he cooked it, and he ate it. He will never, and to this day, tell anyone, the the authorities, her family, no one knows where this body is. Really? Nope. He's holding this one. Monday, July 6, 2009, Susan's 23-year-old son, James, makes a public appeal for information about his mother's disappearance. He goes to a West Yorkshire police news conference, and he says his mother had no reason to go missing. And he urges people to get in touch if they've seen anything or heard anything. And he tells the press in this news conference that his very close family, they're not coping with it well. Hmm. They're not coping with it well at all. Yeah, of course. And she has epilepsy, and she doesn't have her medication with her. Oh, yeah. Two weeks later, on Monday, July 20th, 2009, police make a fresh appeal for information. It's been a month since Susan's disappearance, and they've outlined these three areas of concern. Detective Chief Inspector John Hoyle says, quote, We believe Sue was trying to get a hold of drugs on the day she went missing, that Sue was working as a sex worker, and that Susan suffered from epilepsy, and we do not believe she had her medication with her, end quote. Okay. Which is exactly what I just said. Yeah. So, I mean, her family is like, dude, she needs her medicine. Yeah. She's not just out there hanging out someplace. Yeah, this isn't normal. This is not normal. Yeah. A month later, on Saturday, the 22nd of August, police say they are growing increasingly concerned about Susan Rushworth, who's now been missing for two months. Then another month passes, and on Tuesday, September 22nd, 2009, police make another appeal for information about Susan And then on the three-month anniversary of her disappearance, they do the exact same thing. Okay. But Susan's body will never be found. Right. Yeah. Yeah. She's vanished. And he's never going to give that up. Amazing. Seven months later, on April 26, 2010, Shelly Armitage, age 31, leaves her flat in Allerton with a friend and has dinner on City Road before moving towards Sunbridge Road and Rebecca Street, which is in Bradford's Red Light District. Okay. Shelly was well-known among the other sex workers. She talked about becoming a model, and she really was confident. She came from a very nice family, and she had a boyfriend that loved her very much. She was a sex worker, and she had a boyfriend. She was, yeah. Hmm. And that's not uncommon, apparently. Really? Yeah, hmm. yeah. I mean, they, they turn tricks, score money for the both of them to have drugs. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But Shelley had been addicted to heroin since the age of 16. And according to one sex worker who was interviewed, she would undercut the other sex workers in price. Mm. So one sex worker would say for full sex, 30 pounds. Mm-hmm. And the John would like go around the corner and find Shelley and she's like full sex, 20 pounds. Gotcha. But according to sex worker Donna, quote, she stole off the punters too, dipping their wallets when she was giving them a blowjob, end Whoa. quote. <laughs> so, wow. sleight of hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a punter uh, is British slang for a speculator or a trader who's out to make a quick buck in the financial markets. Okay. But as an insult, 
a punter is the same as a client or a John in the United States. Gotcha. And Shelly has this boyfriend who relies on her to turn tricks in order to make money and pay for drugs. Hmm. And she shares a flat with him in Allerton, which is a suburb of Bradford. And because he knew she was gone and would be gone for days sometimes, he waited until Wednesday, the 28th of April, before he reported to police, Shelly's missing. Hmm. On Wednesday, May 5th, police launch a poster appeal to help trace Shelly Armitage, which states that police are extremely concerned for her safety because she has simply vanished, just like Susan Rushworth. Stephen had invited her to his flat. Mm -hmm. He ties her up in the bathtub, and on her back, he has spray-painted My Sex Slave. Jeez. While he murders her, he tells the camera on his phone, quote, I am the bloodbath artist. Here's a model who is assisting me, end quote. Yeah, it's just disgusting. Again, it's thought, and according to him, that he kept some of her flesh and ate it. Then he packed up her body parts, got on a train, and disposed of her in the Ayers River. On Monday, May 10th, police release CCTV footage showing Shelley walking a short way along Sunbridge Road, a street in Bradford's red light district, before turning around and retracting her steps at about 10.10 p.m. on the night of April 26th. And officers made detailed searches of Beldine Road in Bradford. They're looking for clues to this 31-year-old's disappearance. And they asked around in, like, Huddersfield, where Shelley worked the year before. They get nothing. Shelley, too, just like Susan, didn't claim her benefits or use her mobile phone after her disappearance. Hmm. Then on Friday, May 21st, Susan Blaymeyers from Allerton, Bradford, seems to also disappear. Susan, who was 36 years old, was a bit of a mess back in 2010, this according to one of the other sex workers. Days before, she had been battered and raped by a gang. Wow. But according to her friend, quote, Suzanne was so mad, she just slept it off like a hangover and went out again the next night covered in bruises. Jeez. Suzanne had grown up in a really nice family. Her father was a local businessman, and she went to a really good school. I actually read that she participated in Gymkhanas. I think I said that right. What is that? It's where horses and riders display skills Hmm. in races and contests. So that means like games on horseback. Hmm. So in the United States, there are like barrel racers and keyhole race, you know, down and back. Right. But apparently... Jim Kana is also for cars, too. So I don't know which one. I'm thinking that the gist of it was that Suzanne grew up with money. Right. She went to church on Sundays. She did her A-levels or advanced levels, which is done between the ages of 16 and 18. And, you know, again, advanced placement classes. So Suzanne is smart. Yeah. She also secured herself a place in nursing school or nursing college. Right. But Suzanne liked to party, and she started going to raves and taking ecstasy, Mm -hmm. and that turned into week-long binges on crack and heroin. And a downward spiral. Yes. Yeah. When she's 20, she's married, she's all happy, she has her whole life ahead of her. But by 2001, she has spiraled out of control and is on the street as a sex worker to fund her drug habit. Sad. 
In the early morning hours of Saturday, May 22, 2010, Suzanne is seen near Sunbridge Road, but she'll never be seen again. Stephen takes Suzanne to his flat. She goes in only to run out of the apartment. Stephen tackles her and then brings out a crossbow and he shoots her in the head. Then he drags her body back into his flat by her feet where he puts her in the bathtub and he dismembers her. Nobody sees this? Oh, everybody sees this. Hang on. Okay. <laughs> That's called foreshadowing. Okay. Right. I didn't even have to whisper it. All right. Wait, let me do it. That's called foreshadowing. Oh, very good. Nicely done. <laughs> Nicely done. But he puts her in the bathtub. He dismembers her. He's later going to say that he ate Suzanne's raw flesh. Ugh. Later that day, her boyfriend, who hadn't seen her in three days, becomes worried. He calls Suzanne's mother And he says to the mom, I haven't found her. And the mother says, we haven't heard from her either. We haven't heard from her in weeks. And the family actually contacts the police. Okay. Well, it seems like they keep reporting it, but uh, do they even go to investigate? Have they discovered anything? (laughs) What's going on? No, they haven't discovered anything. They are looking. Okay. And here's why. Because the West Yorkshire police are thinking, whoa, we've got a serial killer on our hands. And he's targeting sex workers. And it's really important to take into consideration here that when the Yorkshire Ripper is out, the police in this area really took some heat for not policing the areas where the sex workers in that case kept going missing and kept being murdered. Uh So this time with a new policing system in place, including a dedicated vice squad and a computerized cross-referencing system called HOLMES, Home Office Large Major Inquiry System. As in Sherlock? Yes. Okay. I know, right? Yeah. Very clever. (laughs) So police get to work. And even as they searched their DNA databases and sex offenders registers, another rape gang happens. And this time it's the 20-year-old daughter of 43-year-old Susan Rushworth who went missing on June 22nd, 2009. The very first woman who went missing Her 20-year-old daughter is raped Mm. by a gang. She's robbed and raped. As if that family didn't have enough going on. Yeah, yeah. So police know they're missing 43-year-old Susan Rushworth, who disappeared on June 22, 2009, 31-year-old Shelly Armitage, who went missing on April 26, 2010, and 36-year-old Suzanne Blaymeyers, who'd just been reported missing by her family. Okay. Now, I believe, and Rob knows this about me, I believe in divine intervention. Mm -hmm. The happenstance of being in the right place at the right time or not being there or feeling like you should do something or be somewhere or call somebody should always listen to those instincts. On the morning of Monday, May 24th, 2010, Peter G., the home field court caretaker, decides... He's going to look through the CCTV from their private security cameras and see what happened over the weekend. Uh-oh. And what does he see? I bet Stephen may have something to do with this. In the early morning hours of May 22nd, he watches a woman being led down the hallway to Stephen Griffith's flat, number 33. And then a few moments later, she's running from the flat, clearly terrified for her life. Stephen chases her, and he's holding in his hands a crossbow. And he has a wild look on his face. Wow. 
He tackles her to the ground and then he shoots her at point blank range in the head with the crossbow. And they've got, this is all on video. This is all on video. Wow. Then he drags her back into the flat by her legs. It's Stephen Griffiths. Wow. Now here's where it just gets crazy. Stephen realizes after he's killed her, or maybe he realizes it before, he knows he's on camera. So after he kills Suzanne and he drags her into his flat, he comes back to the camera with his crossbow in tow. He holds it up high and he gives the camera the finger. (laughs) There is a picture of it. I will post it. If you're going to go out, go out on fire. So at this point, Peter G., the caretaker of the building, is thinking, holy gajoli, I just I just watched a murder take place. And he continues watching over the next few hours. And Stephen is seen on the CCTV recording. He leaves his flat with black garbage bags and a hold all, which the Brits also call a sports bag. So to us, like a duffel or a backpack. Right. Peter calls 999. He calls the police after he sees all this on the CCTV. And they view the footage. I've also read that before calling the police, he called the news desk of the Sun and sold the story. I don't know if that's true or not, but I did read it in one account. All right. But he calls the police. The police are actually called. And they see the footage. And they race to Stephen's flat. And they're thinking, maybe, just maybe, Suzanne is still alive. Right. When they show up to this flat, they are gunning for bear. Yeah. They're thinking he's heavily armed. Mm -hmm. He's brazen. But when they burst through the door, 40-year-old Stephen Griffith gives himself up and tells the police that he is Osama bin Laden. (laughs) That came out of like left field right once again didn't see that one coming didn't see that one coming and it's may of 2010 and bin laden he's not taken out by uh, seal team six until may of 2011 right so a year later wow so bin laden is actually still alive when steven is saying i am osama bin laden (laughs) Uh, i'm rolling my eyes okay whatever steven's arrested and taken to halifax station Suzanne's body is nowhere to be found in the flat. Wow. They start searching the crime scene and all the surrounding areas because there's no body. Right. And then they find Suzanne's clothes in a trash bin not far from home field court. Okay. Meanwhile, Stephen is being interrogated by the police and he tells them he has deep issues inside him. That's an understatement. That's exactly what I was about ready to say. Yeah, that's an understatement. But please do go on, Stephen. He tells them that he did murder Suzanne, but he won't tell them what he's done with her body. Hmm. But he has plenty of other things to tell the police. He said that Suzanne, who he knew as Amber, was, quote, gone, end quote. And he had, quote, eaten some of her, end quote. He told them that? Uh Uh-huh. Which is, quote... Part of the magic, end quote. Yeah. Wow. But the next day, May 25th, around 2 p.m., a member of the public finds a backpack or a whole doll in the river air mm-hmm. in Shipley, West Yorkshire. This is only five minutes away from Homefield Court where Stephen lives. Okay. And inside the bag is a woman's head. Yeah. It's Suzanne Blameyer. Wow. And her head still has the crossbow bolt embedded in it. 
And of course, this person who finds it, can you imagine just like walking in there like, mm, that's just a bag. Yeah. I don't know that I would open it, but yeah. he opens it and finds a head. Wow. Yeah. They arrive and they start searching the river for more body parts of Suzanne, and they find them. Okay. The whole area is taped off. It's now a crime scene because they have a body, or at least they have body parts. Okay. And the divers go in. They also find a makeshift toolkit about 200 yards away from the body parts, something that was probably used to dismember the body. Right. Yeah. Now, again, after Stephen drags Suzanne's body back into his flat, he dismembers her body in the bathtub in his bathroom, puts her remains in a backpack, and they left. So they can follow Stephen on CCTV carrying the bags full of body parts hmm. to the nearest railway station where he takes the train to Shipley and dumps the body parts. He takes the body parts on the train. <laughs> on the wow. train. Wow. And it's not the first time he's done it. Yeah. Meanwhile, back at the Halifax police station, they continue to question Stephen, and voluntarily, he brings up the names of Susan Rushworth and Shelley Armitage. Wow, he just gives it up. Gives it up. It's like he's almost, he's proud. He is so proud. Wow. You're so good with the foreshadowing today, sweetheart. <laughs> I am so proud of you. I'm good with the foreshadowing. You are. You are. <laughs> he tells the police that he murdered all three of the missing women. Plus, quote, loads of others, end quote. Really? And the police don't know whether to believe him or not. Yeah. He's smart. He's done all his research on serial killers. He's now going to play the damaged person with uncontrollable impulses. Mm. It's a little bit of a performance. Right. I mean, part of the reason he gives the finger to the camera is because he's saying, here I am. Yeah. Come and get me. Yep. I'm a killer. Yep. Yeah. Wow. And all the sex workers are saying to the press, really, Stephen? Really? Yeah. Really? Because over the years, he's fed them and allowed them to sleep in his flat. Sure. And he lets them shower there. And they think he's nice. Right. He's it a was, brother figure. He played the long game with these sex workers. The long game. Right. He's charged with the murders of all three on May 27th, 2010. And when they search the river air even more, police come up with another 159 body parts. What? Holy cow. Not all of the bits belonged to Suzanne. There were only two parts of Shelley Armitage found and a part of her spine and a section of flesh revealing knife marks. Mm. Now, using DNA testing, they discover that some of the body parts belonged to Shelley. And even though he took credit for the disappearance and the death of Susan, Susan Rushworth, the very first one, 43-year-old right. mother of three, right. he won't say what he's done with her body. Wow. So did he really do it? Probably did. Yeah. He wants to be difficult. He wants to show the police and the media how smart he is. He's the smartest guy in the room. He wants to be a famous serial killer. Yeah. When they painstakingly go through Stephen's flat, they do find blood that belonged to Susan Rushworth in the bathroom. Okay. They also go through his computer and find footage of a naked Shelly Armitage trussed up in the bathtub with her back spray painted with my sex slave. Hmm. Again, while he murders her, he tells the camera, I'm the bloodbath artist. Here's the model who's assisting me. So it's a performance. Yeah. Yep. 
And here's how they find the second part of footage. He says, you know, I'm a bloodbath artist on his phone. And then the big dummy loses his phone on the train (laughs) and somebody finds it. Bless his heart. And it's eventually turned into the police. (laughs) So don't murder somebody. Film it on your phone and then lose your phone. (laughs) Yes. And Uh, at this point, I'm kind of like with the other sex workers. Really, Stephen? Really? Right. On May 28th, 2010, Stephen appears before Bradford Magistrates. Okay. And Stephen, who has this flair for the dramatic, he arrives and the clerk asks him to state his name. Standard procedure. And right. he says, quote, Here we go. I'm the crossbow cannibal. Uh, End quote. Wow. He gives himself his own serial killer moniker. Wow. And he's doing it in front of the victim's families sitting right there in the courtroom. Jeez. Yeah. You'd want to kill him right there. Yeah. So he's thrown out the word cannibal. Yeah. And remember who are his favorite fictional characters? Yeah. Francis Dollarhide, the necrophiliac serial killer, and Hannibal Lecter, right. the serial killer and cannibal. Little fava beans. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awful. <laughs> that is awful. Do you know this is this is way off subject, but did you know that Jodie Foster was never in the same room with Sir Anthony Hopkins? Really? They never spoke. Really? Ever. And when she walks the long hallway all the way to his jail cell at the end, and he's standing there, that's the first time she saw him. Really? I just think that that's crazy. And he was very intimidating. And it shows. It shows. (laughs) Very much shows. But Stephen is up there. He has zero remorse. Not a care in the world for these families and these victims. And this is his shining moment. And he announces himself to the court, not as Stephen Sean Griffiths, but as the crossbow cannibal. And everyone's stunned. This narcissist has the attention of everybody. It did exactly what he wanted it to do, because especially the media. Mm. Now he'll go down in infamy. And the headlines are huge. And when I mean huge, I mean they're taking up all the front page of all the newspapers. Wow. But then there's the question, did he really eat his victims or was it all show? Mm-hmm. And I go back to if he ate a live baby rat, if somebody, a credible yeah. witness says he ate a live baby rat, he probably did eat, eat the girls. Well, and I think he would have, too, just to prove to himself that he's this thing that he thinks he is. So special? Yeah. 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 Well, the evidence in his flat also kind of suggested that it was true. There was DNA evidence in Stephen's kitchen Hmm. that he might have had human flesh in there. Wow. And they don't have a reason not to believe him because he was truthful with the other stuff. Right. When he gave it all up. Yeah. He's taken all these photos. He spent time with all these bodies. All of those things are correct. Right. On October 15th, pre-trial hearing happens. The details of the murders come out, the filming, the photographs, all of it. The families, the police, the media, everybody is appalled at the story. Stephen is so effing proud of himself. Of course he is. But a lot can happen in a couple of months. And before his hearing in December of 2010, he refused to speak with his legal team. He made four suicide attempts. Mm. He went on a hunger strike, all because he wanted out of Wakefield Prison. He wants to be moved to Rampton Psychiatric Hospital in Nottinghamshire. 
Yeah, I don't think you got a choice in any of this, Stephen. So, well, think about it. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. Sure. He's not going to be in a horrible prison. He would be in a hospital. Right, right. But the things that he's doing, the suicide attempts, the hunger strike, it's all more control, all things he has control over. And very attention-seeking, very much like walking your four-foot lizard on a dog leash (laughs) while wearing a long black Uh, trench coat through the neighborhood, right? So did the lizard have a harness or just – Yes, he's walking it like a dog. (laughs) That's crazy. December 21st, 2010, the hearing begins at Leeds Crown Court seven months after he calls himself the crossbow cannibal. No one knows if he's going to plead guilty or not. Is he going to plead guilty or not guilty? Hmm. So packed with press, family, friends, all these senior police officers who worked on this case, everybody's there. Right. Everybody's there waiting with bated breath. Stephen pleads. I have no – I can't guess this guy one way or the other. I'm, let me give me – I've got a 50-50 here. I'm going to say he's so proud he's going to plead guilty. He pleads guilty. Okay. He does to all three murders, and he is sentenced to whole life or a life sentence. Hmm. He still has never given the location of Susan Rushworth's body. Mm-hmm. He's very choreographed. He was very controlled, very calculated, much like Hannibal the Cannibal and Francis Dollerhide. Right. Much like these fictional characters that he loves. Sure. That he's, you know, putting all their quotes up on his MySpace. Well, his whole world is like a little fantasy world that he lives in. It is. That's exactly what the psychiatrists have said. He mm-hmm. lives in this fantasy world. Yeah. After he's convicted of all three murders, Justice Openshaw told the court, quote, The circumstances of these murders are so wicked and monstrous, they leave me in no doubt the defendant should be kept in prison for the rest of his life, end quote. Yay. Oh, God. Yeah, you think? Stephen Griffiths is suspected of killing at least three additional women. And as for his hunger strike... Well, he told the guards that he gave up eating to see how his victims felt just before death. Okay. And he claimed his hunger strike was just to see how the newspapers and TV would cover his possible death. (laughs) He only wanted to know how far he could go and see how his victims felt. Wow. Now, I don't know how starving yourself is the same as dismembering somebody, Stephen. Yeah. But okay. Yeah. Whatever. Stephen had a scrambled egg and orange juice to end his hunger strike at Wakefield Jail. (laughs) And according to the guards, he thought he'd set some new record for a hunger strike. He did not. No. It's all about him. Yep. According to Stephen himself, quote, I'm a misanthropic. I don't have much time for the human race, end quote. Nor do we have much time for you, Stephen. I was going to say the exact same thing. May you rot in hell with your demon friends. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, hope you got a fan. Yeah, hope I hope you got a good one. Hope you got a good fan. <laughs> but that is the story of the crossbow cannibal, Stephen Griffiths. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners. This is Chris Calvert. I love doing research and writing about real crimes, but I also love writing about fictional people who commit horrible atrocities. When you're ready to take a break from true crime for fictional crime, go to chriscalvert.com where you'll find all my books, including some free ones to get you started. 
Jane Doe is one badass chick who quietly hunts terrorists in the United States. The Sex and Lies books are all FBI and CIA cases with a little romance on the side. And coming summer 2022, book 10 in the series Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll releases. You can find all of these books everywhere, and if you like to listen instead of read, you can find them all on Audible. So go grab a free book or take a listen. I love all the characters I've written. I've given them pain, ruined their lives, make them suffer, and maybe even throw in a heroic death. Or maybe they live to fight another day. Check it all out at chriscalvert.com. And thanks for being a listener of Hitched to Homicide. Well, I'm just glad that uh, that Stephen, that he fessed up to everything. He did. Th- that could have gone on for years. Uh, well, not the CCTV. He yeah. confessed to the other ones. Right. But there's evidence of the last two. It's just the first one yeah. that he says that he murdered. And her DNA was found in his flat. Right. But he won't say what he did with her. Well. And why, I don't know. I would think that he would want, I think maybe he doesn't know. Yeah. Because why wouldn't he want to have this whole new news story about himself? A brand new news cycle about him and where the body is. Well, all I can say is good riddance. Yeah. See ya. I agree. Take care. Let's lighten it up and do a little, well, bless your heart. All right, we're going to start off this week with, excuse me, sir, I think you dropped this. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Christopher Wilson thought that he had organized the perfect crime when he entered a home improvement store in Washington to steal the goods he desired, but he wasn't all that careful. Okay. Well, apparently, Wilson accidentally dropped his bottle of methamphetamines during his lame attempt <laughs> at committing a crime. Oops. And with it, his name and phone number for the clerks and police officers to discover. So he has like a his card and his meth? I mean... I don't know if it was on a prescription bottle or something, but all of his info was right there for them just for the taking. Yeah. Okay. All right, number two. And this one I'm going to call, excuse me, sir, I think you dropped this. <laughs> <laughs> An 18-year-old take two. Yeah, an 18-year-old teen named Stephen Diaz from Pasadena, California, wanted to have drinks with friends and passed by Vaughn's supermarket to shoplift a bottle of wine. Vaughn's. I've been in a Vaughn's before. Yeah. As the teen tried to get away from the shop, he punched a security guard. Oops. Dropped his wallet, his ID, and worst of all. The wine. I was going to say, dropped it all, (laughs) everything. Of course, he was easily tracked down by the police and arrested shortly after his stupid actions. Oops. All right, number three. I'm going to call this cleanliness is next to godliness. Okay. A really weird dude (laughs) once raided a house in Texas. Wait, a really weird dude? That's (laughs) how you're starting this? Yep. Okay. A really weird dude once raided a house in Texas at four in the morning and naturally scared the hell out of the owner who fled, immediately calling the police. Okay. When the officers arrived on the scene, they couldn't believe their eyes. They were surprised to find that the intruder hadn't stolen or broken a thing other than the door. And that all he wanted, apparently, was a warm bath. Oh, I thought you were going to say something to eat. No, he just wanted a warm bath. Ooh, That's all he did. That's going to leave That's gonna leave a ring. <laughs> oh, that's going to leave a mark. Yeah, get the Clorox out. <laughs> uh, all right. And our last one, I'm calling this, 
Look up Gullible and you'll see her right there. Oh, okay. Back in March of 2016, the Granite Shoals Police Department in Texas issued a very special warning on its Facebook page that declared, If you have recently purchased meth or heroin in Central Texas, please take it to the local police or sheriff's department so it can be screened with a special device. Do not use until it has been properly checked for possible Ebola contamination. It's a trap. You think? Yeah. Yeah. The message, of course, was a ruse. Regardless, concerned citizen Chastity Hobson reportedly did her duty by bringing her sample of an illegal substance to be examined. Hobson was promptly arrested and held on $5,000 bond. (laughs) So there you go. Bless their hearts. Unless it says amnesty on (laughs) it, that means, because don't they have like those days where you can drop off drugs, you can drop off weapons, Ebola? (laughs) Not so much. Not so much. Is my meth clean? Can you check it for me? (laughs) Jeez. Whatever. God love her. Bless her heart. heart. Well, if you have a bless your heart, you know somebody who's dropping their meth in the middle of the hardware store, (laughs) you can send it to us. Go to hitchtohomicide.com. There's a pull-down menu. You can also suggest a case. Yeah. We love that. Yes, we do. That's all we have this week. That's my amazing husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. Bye, y'all.